Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. My aim is to explain how and why a certain notion of the self has come to dominate the culture of the West. Why this self finds its most obvious manifestation in the transformation of sexual mores, and what the wider implications of this transformation are and may well be in the future. So writes Carl Truman in the introduction to his 2020 book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This is a book the progressives should read in order to better understand how social conservatives perceive the massive societal changes, particularly in the realm of sexual politics and identity of the last 60 years or so. It is a book that social conservatives, particularly Christian ones, should read so as to understand the sexual revolution, and in particular, the normalization of transgenderism. Truman argues that transgenderism cannot be properly understood without a grasp of a centuries-long transformation in how people in Western societies came to understand the nature of human selfhood. Truman charts the rise of expressive individualism and how that worldview affects nearly every niche of our lives. He writes, The sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in the routine transgression of traditional sexual codes or even a modest expansion of the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior. Rather, it involves the abolition of such codes in their entirety. More than that, it has come in certain areas, such as that of homosexuality, to require the positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such traditional views has come, has come to be seen as ridiculous and even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. Truman elucidates in depth the ideas of three philosophers of the modern condition, Philip Reif, Charles Taylor, and Alistair McIntyre. He traces as well the impact on our own times of a range of thinkers and movements, including Rousseau, Wilhelm Reich, Herbert Marcuse, the Romantics, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud, Surrealism, Hugh Hefner, Anthony Kennedy, Peter Singer, Adrian Rich, Judith Butler, and LGBTQ plus activists. Whatever your political or religious views, this book will endow you with an understanding of the origins of current and future debates about free speech and religious liberty. 
and to judge the merits of the arguments of both sides with humanity. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Carl Truman, the author of the 2020 book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Thank you for joining us today, Carl. It's great to be here, Hope. Thanks for having me on. I'm delighted. Your book is getting a lot of buzz, especially in conservative circles, but elsewhere as well, which is, which is very wonderful because it's a magnificent book. It's magnum opus. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to focus on several of the phrases in the title of your book. This will take some time because some of the phrases in the title are key to several sections of your book and are, are crucial to understanding them. Let's start with the term, the modern self, and let's get into the nitty gritty. What do you mean by modern and what do you mean by self? You mentioned your grandfather in the book. Was his view of the self all that different from that of you of your children or your children? Did your grandfather and those of his generation even think about the self as many people do today? When did modern kick in? I think particularly of the famous quote from Virginia Woolf, for for instance, to wit, on or about December 1910, human character changed. Where does Wolf's statement fall in your timetable of change? And I would point out, too, that she herself in her fiction and many of her writings was a gender bender par excellence. So have at it. Yes. Well, the obviously, the, the timing of the arrival of the modern could be a matter of debate, partly because it arrives earlier for the intellectual elites than it does for the ordinary man or woman in the street. Uh, you're pointing to uh, Virginia Woolf in the early 20th century, and, and Woolf was certainly a pioneer of, of modernist literature. And as you uh, mentioned, uh, also a, a pioneer of, of what I would describe as the modern self, the, the idea of, of human nature, human beings as, as things that can effectively invent themselves. We're able to, to transgress boundaries, uh, construct ourselves in, in ways that we choose. Took a long time for that idea to percolate down to to all levels of society. So, you know, think about my granddad. My granddad died just about thirty years ago. Certainly, he was not a man of the modern age as Wolf was. My granddad was an ordinary working man and operated with very traditional categories. He was actually a lifelong socialist, but his social and cultural categories would have been very conservative and very static. But modernity is now pervasive. Uh, I think all of us are subject to the kind of ideas, the kind of thinking that Virginia Woolf uh, epitomized, as you say, just uh, over a uh, hundred years ago. So when I talk about the modern, I'm really talking about the contemporary, the way most people in the West think about themselves today. The self, there is a sense in which we, we use the self quite often in, in very common sense ways. I, I'm aware that I'm not Hope Lehman. You're aware that you're not me. Uh, we're both aware that we're not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. We have a, a sense of self-consciousness where, that we understand we have an individuality that marks us off from everybody else. That's a sort of common sense way of understanding the self, and it's not the way I'm using it in this book. In the book, the notion of the self, the idea I'm trying to to, to conceptualize is what we think the purpose of our lives is, where we find our fulfillment, how we understand ourselves in relation to the rest of the world. What is it that really provides me with my real identity? Uh, an example, you know, I might draw a contrast with my grandfather at this point and say my, my grandfather's identity was very much rooted in 
the fact that he was a member of a trade union, he worked in a factory, he was able to provide uh, food and shelter and clothing for his family through the money he earned. Uh, for him, the happy life was the life where he was able to earn enough money to meet his obligations to others. For me, uh, the happy life is one where I get a sense of real psychological satisfaction out of the work that I do. And in the contrast there, you see a, a change in the notion of the self. My granddad self was fitting himself into the outward structures of society, conforming himself to the demands that society placed upon him. For me, selfhood is, is a much more internalized thing, a much more internal thing. It's a much more psychologically oriented thing. So th that was the what I'm getting at in the self. What is it that makes us tick? How do we think of ourselves in relation to the purpose, meaning of life, other people, etc.? Well, now that we've addressed the concept of self, let's turn to the concept of expressive individualism. And I would just point out for listeners that that term and concept provides the framework of another notable book, which is being paired with yours at this time as two books very similar in their uh, discussion of expressive individualism. And that book is from the bioethicist, bioethicist O. Carter Sneed, and his book from Harvard University Press is entitled, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And reading his book, which I just did, and yours in tandem is a powerful combo, Carl, I'd say that they're really, both of them are just superb. Could you please tell us what expressive individualism is and why did you choose to focus on it as a concept for that social conservatives in particular need to grapple with rather than, say, secular humanism or social justice? Yeah, good question. First of all, on Carter's book, I, I read it uh, about two weeks ago, and it, I, it was immensely, I wouldn't say gratifying, it was immensely re relieving to find somebody else who was sort of tracking along the same lines that I was. There's nothing like uh, somebody else doing the same sort of thing that that helps to confirm that, yeah, I'm heading in the, the right sort of direction. Uh, expressive individualism, it's, it's a term used by the philosopher Charles Taylor. It's also used in the later work of uh, Alistair McIntyre. Uh, it's used most famously, perhaps, in the work of Robert Bella, Habits of the Heart, in the mid-1980s. And that's the notion that uh, the, the self is, is, is most authentic when we are able to act outwardly on that which we feel inwardly. Uh, we express ourselves by by moving that which we we feel inwardly into the the public sphere. So that was the the sort of the notion of the self that I wanted to latch onto, and it it really makes the individual in in some sense the most basic element of society. And when you think about how we think about uh, society today, we, we tend to think of it as, as not a natural thing, but a thing that is formed by individuals contracting together in some form. You know, if you'd been born in the Middle Ages, you'd have been born, into, let's say, in Europe into an agrarian feudal society. And you would have assumed that the way to discover your identity was to, to work out the natural structure of the world the feudal structure of the world and fit yourself into it. We don't think that way anymore. We tend to think of ourselves as, as sovereign individuals who contract with others. Uh, so there's a kind of, uh, uh, there's both an internal dimension to this, that, that my inner life is the most basic element of who I am, and a, a potentially adversarial relationship to other people as well. Other people are those with whom I have to contract 
a relationship in some way. So that's what I was trying to get at with expressive individualism. Why I chose it over secular humanism is I think that it's it's a much broader category, particularly when you know my own constituency is sort of broadly Christian and, and broadly conservative. There can be a tendency in, in that constituency to, to demonize those who disagree with us and, and dismiss them as, oh, that's secular humanism, or, or that's this, or that's that. The thing about expressive individualism is we're all complicit in it. Yeah, in, in a sense, one might say, well, somebody chooses to be a secular humanist in the way that Truman chooses to be religious. The most basic thing uh, 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 in in that situation is we're both doing the choosing. We're both making ourselves authentic in our own way. So I chose the category because one of the points I wanted to make in the book is that the issue of expressive individualism, the issue of the modern self, is not a them and us. It's all of us. We choose different roots. We manifest our selfhood in different ways. But at root, we're all operating with the same kind of model that I choose. I choose who I am. So expressive individualism was really a way of trying to capture a much broader category than the the typical ones that are used in, say, the culture wars, and a way of, of making us all aware that we're kind of complicit in this same uh, phenomenon right from the word go. Hmm. Well, that's helpful. Now, another another uh, phrase from your title of your book, well, that's cultural amnesia. And again, why why amnesia as opposed to, say, iconoclasm or animus? Because so much of it is not so much I don't want to remember as I want to destroy. I was just interested in your use of the term amnesia. Yes, yeah, so, and, and certainly I, I guess I could have used those terms as well. When I use the term cultural amnesia, and I was actually just teaching a class this morning on this, the students have said, I'm, I'm not using amnesia in the sense necessarily of, uh, of just, hey, I completely forgot about that. I am thinking more in terms of a cultural attitude, a deliberate forgetting or a deliberate rejection, a deliberate repudiation of the importance of the past for the present. So iconoclasm would have worked just as well. Uh, there's a limit to how long a subtitle can be, of course, got to fit it on the cover of a book. But but iconoclasm would have worked just as well, although iconoclasm captures a, an intentionality that that often isn't there for most people. It's not that we've repudiated the past. It's that we never think about the past. We've never been taught about the past. We've never bothered to ask the question as to whether the past has anything uh, to teach us. So I, I suppose I was trying to capture a little bit of the uh, again, you have the activists with the iconoclasts and you have the vast majority of the rest of us who simply don't know or don't care. And I was trying to, to, to touch that. Again, going back to expressive individualism, if you think that the most basic thing about you is what goes on inside your head, then you'll have a tendency to think that the most uncorrupted form of you is the you that existed before society got you and forced you to conform to its historical conventions. So expressive individualism has a kind of anti-historical bent built into it. And that's, again, what I wanted to capture with that term cultural amnesia was these things are connected. It's not we have cultural amnesia over here and expressive individualism over there. They're actually intimately connected. Well, now we'll get to the final juiciest phrase in the title, and that's the sexual revolution. And I was interested that you used 
sexual revolution singular? Because in a way, haven't there been several? For example, there was the free love movement among the Bohemians of Greenwich Village circa 1915 and sexual escapades of the Bloomsbury set, which you talk about in the little of the book. And you uh, went through a bit, and we also in America, we went through the, the flappers, which was a sort of proto-sexual liberation of young women. And there were, in the 1950s, there were steamy figures such as Marlon Brando, and of course, the hippies in the 1960s, and the 1970s, the rise of sexual identity politics in the form of people like Harvey Milk. But you seem particularly concerned about transgenderism. Could you tell us why? Um, well, you know, first of all, as, as the term the sexual revolution, uh, I'm really using it in a, in a broad way to to refer to not simply, I think in the book I say, not simply the the routine transgression of sexual codes that's always gone on. I mean, the thing about the Bloomsbury group was they knew what the standard sexual codes of Victorian slash Edwardian England were, and they, they chose to transgress them. Uh, there's always been transgression of whatever the established sexual codes are. Uh, the sexual revolution, as I use the term, is not so much about the, the transgressing of boundaries as it is about the abolition of boundaries in their entirety. And I'm really focused in the book on on what emerges in the 50s and then explodes in the 60s, and, and in which we live in we live in the aftermath of. And that's the the idea that traditional sexual codes, monogamous heterosexual marriage. Uh, Heterosexual heterosexuality as normative; those kind of things uh, are seen as as repressive. Again, as as repressive of that expressive person that we all are. Um, therefore, we have this coming together of uh, the the transgression of sexual codes with the notion of political liberation and. Uh, whatever else the uh, Bloomsbury group were, they weren't revolutionary figures in a sort of massive social sense. It, they were a bunch of upper-class uh, English people who enjoyed breaking the rules. When we get to the 60s, we see emerging a much more comprehensive understanding of these rules are bad, and they're bad for everyone, and we need to get rid of them if we're going to facilitate political freedom and political liberation. And transgenderism fits uh, into that, I think, because in some senses, transgenderism is, I won't say it's breaking the last taboo because there are always more taboos to break, but transgenderism represents uh, a rebellion, uh, in some ways the latest rebellion against any form of external authority, even the authority of the body is is being repudiated at this point and you know for my granddad if he'd understood these phrases it would have been obvious to him that the the basic sexual codes of of, of you know normative heterosexuality were engraved into the bodies of men and women now that's questioned now that's denied so transgenderism is i would say uh, a kind of the latest and most radical iteration of uh, a, a sexualized notion of the expressive expressive individual. Yeah, I remember seeing a cover story about maybe 10 years ago now. I was just idly looking at, I, I get the New Republic, and uh, it was a cover story about the, the, this is the new civil rights movement or something. I had a picture of a, of a person, and I couldn't tell what sex the person was. And I thought, what is this? And then, of course, it started, as you say, it started percolating through the culture. And and uh, that was a classic case of the elite calling the shots on what, what's going to happen. And uh, I just want to read on the subject of transgenderism, you, you write in the book about the, 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 the use of language that you use in the book. And you write, 
I am aware that LGBTQ plus people object to the term transgenderism as indicating a denial of the reality of transgender people and therefore as a pejorative term. Nonetheless, I use it in this book to point out to point to the underlying philosophical assumptions that must be regarded as correct if a person's claim to be transgender is to be seen as coherent. If it's legitimate for LGBTQ plus theorists and advocates to use terms such as cisgenderism to refer to the ideology that underlies opposition to the transgender movement, then it is also legitimate to use transgenderism to refer to the ideology that underpins it. And when what terms do they do they prefer if they don't want transgenderism? And and is is it part of their program to force others to use their terminology? Because I mean, because it's it's it, 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 it you can't win kind of thing. It's like I didn't know that was offensive to you. I'm sorry. And then then I, then you're in the, immediately put in the position of having to apologize because you're not using what they're demanding. Correct. Yes, and, and I mean the history of the term transgenderism actually reflects that because originally it was considered by the transgender community to be a perfectly acceptable way mm. of, uh, of of referring exactly, to, to yeah. the issue. Uh, uh, words, as as Amy Coney Barrett discovered recently, yes, words words absolutely. that were acceptable yesterday or even this morning can very quickly become pejorative and unacceptable. So uh, I use. I wanted t- to ask you about that. Could you address that? The fact that she used the term. Preferences, and that was immediately leapt upon by Maisie Hirono of Hawaii as, oh no, that's outdated, and so forth. And and then other people said, well, actually, just a year or two ago, it was perfectly acceptable. Just language. a month or two ago, I think uh, yeah. Webster's Dictionary changed it to a pejorative that day, that, I believe. That was really chilling. Um, that was fascinating. Uh, that they, that, that, that the dictionary overnight, literally overnight almost, yeah. the, was changed. And I was going to say the interesting thing about that as well, just as an aside, is it's a sort of gotcha thing. It's a little bit like these people having their careers destroyed because they've used a word they shouldn't have used on Twitter. Uh, Typically, speak people know that when when people mistakenly use a word like that, it's not because they're ideologically committed to racism or sexism or something like that. It's a slip. And uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was, was pilloried, then to me that looks like a power play. That's you know nobody's accusing her of being this, that, or the other simply on the basis of that one word. So it's it's an interesting uh, example of how. In this world where everything is sort of floating now, uh, words can be transformed and weaponized very, very, very quickly. Well, uh, a quote again from your book on the same subject is you say, emphasis is on emphasis on what we might call the right to psychological happiness of the individual will also have some practical, obvious practical effects. For example, language will become much more contested than the past because words that cause psychological harm will become problematic and will need to be policed and, and suppressed. To use pejorative racial or sexual that ceases to be a trivial matter, instead it becomes an extremely serious act of oppression. And I think what's interesting is in a way, Amy Coney Barrett won that argument because she said, okay, here's your apology, can we move on? And then she now she's on the Supreme Court. And it was it was just kind of a, a, a blip, really. People, I think that there wasn't outrage except in, very, in certain elite circles and in the, you know, the LGTB Q plus tr- press and so forth. But anyway, but um, uh, I'm speaking of the need to conform to language dictates, uh, speaking of the subject of the transgender community and, and language, I noticed that when discussing the person known as Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner, you refer to this person throughout as he. Was that a bit of defiance on your part to the social policing that we've been discussing? Or is it just you? you what, why was that? Do you feel that, that 
he is Bruce and still, even though he's called, you see, I'm tripping over the whole issue because yeah, we yeah. have this difficulty with pronouns. Yeah, I think actually the the, the reference uh, the references to to Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner would would generally when it was Bruce talking about his his future transition. Uh, I tried to be careful on that point because you know while I don't want my language policed, I, I don't want to cause unnecessary offence. I, I want people to read the book and try to to grapple with the argument rather than with the aesthetics uh, of the presentation of the argument, so to speak. So I've tried on the whole to be careful on that front. Um, but I would say that uh, the bottom line is, um, it, again, it goes down to how you construct the relationship between sex and gender, but but Caitlyn Jenner continues to have XY chromosomes. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, without wanting to get too crude about it, doesn't menstruate. Caitlyn Jenner cannot conceive a child. All of these things that would typically be regarded as as rather essential to to being a woman. So while I want to be careful on 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 that issue and not cause unnessary offence, uh, I'm very wary of the radical constructionism that gender theory uh, posits and builds itself upon. J.K. Rowling, of course, got into serious trouble on precisely that point just a month or two ago. Yeah, she's been very courageous in just saying, defending, as, as you discuss in the book, and we'll discuss later in the interview about Jermaine Greer, too, about, I don't want other people to tell me what womanhood is. I don't want men to tell me what womanhood is. And I think that's, she's, and she's very... Um, privileged in, I mean, again, that's, I, I don't like to use the politically correct language, but she's lucky in that she has a position of, of, of power, even though she comes from her own background, that she's not a person of power. She earned her power through her talent rather than, than privilege. But um, speak, but sticking with the subject of, of sports, uh, and, and since we're just talking about Jenner, is, do you think that, that the fact that, that uh, the Achilles heel of the transgenderism might be what it's doing to women's sports. After all, many parents who are consider themselves liberal are also very proud of their daughters who are, you know, on the soccer field and uh, basketball court and so forth. Are such parents going to start to bridle when biological boys, boy, children who are bi- basically biologically boys demand the right to compete as girls or women's sports, which are kind of in abeyance right now during the pandemic, going to be an area where transgenderism experiences first pushback and maybe even rollback? Or is it just a matter of, Let's face it that that women it's going to be a, a, a transgender field, and that's that, that there is really no women's sports per se. I mean, how does that affect the Olympics and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you push the the logic that's being pushed in other areas uh, in in sports, then you're really looking at the at the death of women's sports, that any sport that involves speed, strength or stamina up to a certain point I, I think it's I'm correct I used to I used to run marathons ran an ultra marathon I think when you get beyond 50 miles the difference between men and women is is negligible if not non-existent so ultra running might continue but I'm I'm the, the advisor at Grove City College to the the women's rugby team uh, and I would be delinquent if I allowed the women's rugby team to take the field against a men's rugby team. Uh, it would be physically very, very dangerous for the women in the rugby team to play a full 15 from a male rugby team. One of my uh, women the other week had trained with the men and she she came to me the day after and she said, Dr. Truman, 
wow, those those guys just hit so hard. And I, I actually said to her, you need to be careful because you could get serious, you know, you could be put in a wheelchair in a game of rugby if you're, if you're hit too hard. So I would say, you know, I think there are numerous things that the transgender movement is going to find itself coming up against. And certainly women's sports is perhaps uh, the one that, that most obviously affects most people at this point. Uh, because it's going to be dangerous for for women to play some sports up against men, and they will be deprived of scholarships, and they'll thus they'll be deprived of college educations that they might have otherwise had, and it's sort of a financial issue as well. Yes, it's, um, it has the, serious implications. Mm, on the continuing with transgenderism, uh, I think I disagree with you a little bit. You re, you seem to regard it more as an unstoppable force, and. I wonder, is it really? Because to me, it seems, is a movement so defend, so dependent on artificial aid, such as hormone injection, radical forms of surgery, sustainable? Uh, is actually, it because, it's, because homosexuality is, you don't have to have a major change in pharmacologically or surgically to be a homosexual man, for example. No, and, and I think, I, I do say in the book, I think you know, gay marriage has come and it's, it's not shattered civilization as we know it. It's not really... Uh, um, uh, threatened most people's way of life in any significant way. It, it's sort of been accommodated to uh, uh, American culture. I do think transgenderism is different, and I actually, I, I, I am more optimistic that that the tide may change on this one because, for various, there are various things about it that I think make it unsustainable in the long run. But one of them is one could certainly envisage a situation in 20, 30, 40 years time when children who have been uh, given hormone therapy uh, before puberty because they were confused about their gender, uh, in 30, 40 years time, uh, decide to sue their parents, sue the doctors and sue the insurance companies who who underwrote the project. Uh, And I think, you know, one of the things that has always struck me about America as, as an as an outsider coming to America is money really does talk in America. And once the insurance companies are getting clobbered by uh, legal settlements, then you can expect attitudes to change on these things. So I actually think that transgenderism could well be a step too far in the, in, in the sexual revolution because it's taking on too many opponents and is vulnerable, I think, uh, on, on that front. Whether it will happen, I don't know. And, and, and if the scenario I articulated does happen, it will only happen after terrible human suffering, because that's typically what lies behind these kind of lawsuits. So it's, it's not a good scenario from that perspective. But I do wonder long term if in its current form it is sustainable. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, also, too, we're seeing examples of it, sort of harbingers of, of the lawsuits to come in, in the fact that some of the East German athletes who are now 40 or 50 years old, that were forced by their government to take steroids and hormones and so forth, um, are now, you know, riddled with difficulties. And some of them just change their gender entirely because it was so hopeless to be to be a woman with that level of, of chemical <laughs> ingestion. Yeah. It's, it's tra- but I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the medical establishment let's talk about the ethics of it is the medical establishment some of it is embracing it as a new source of revenue saying well i'm a surgeon and i can lop off the breasts of 13 year olds or are they saying i feel a con i feel this is totally unethical to to have children being either pressured by parents and which which we've seen to change their gender or children demanding it of parents and they feel that they're that the parents are being pressured by the children and by outside advocates for the children, even if, even in the case of government, there's a lot of ethical minefields is happening. And also the fact that young girls, it used to be, there's even, there have been books about tomboyism was a very normal and natural phase that young girls go through. And that's become pathologized at this point that, oh, well, she's confused and she needs, she needs greater, this is, she's dysfunctional rather than just tomboy. Yes, and that's in some ways uh, sort of going to the background of the book. It's one of, one of the things I wanted to get at in the book is is what are the cultural conditions or cultural assumptions that have shaped our approach to this particular phenomenon. I, I do think that there's a, a a division of opinion in the in the medical establishment on this. Uh, the interviews I've listened to with uh, surgeons and those involved in gender transition, it does. I, I've I've yet to come across an interview where where somebody took the matter trivially, or where somebody simply saw it as a way of, of, of maximizing their income. I, I do think the motivation of, of certainly of the interviews I've heard, we would say the motivation is good. They, they genuinely want to help somebody be happy. And that's a good motivation. So uh, I would certainly say that. But I, but I think the problem we face is we, we're operating in a culture where Certain things have become plausible that perhaps should not be plausible and are not in the best interests of, of human beings to be plausible. One of them is that that our minds, our feelings, uh, have, uh, have come to have a sort of absolute authority over our bodies. That's an unusual position to be in culturally and one with dramatic implications far beyond the transgender issue, I think. Well, one thing I think that's fascinating is that in the name of empowerment of the individual and the individual psyche that the transgender music sorry the transgender movement uses such phrases assigned at birth versus recognized at birth so there but but rather than empowering the individual the transgender movement is actually ceding an immense amount of power to medical providers for example as a woman i found what you write here quite appalling you write being a woman is now something that can be produced by a technique, literally prescribed by a doctor. And I think my my gender is prescribed by a doctor. That's medicalizing my my identity as a as a as a heterosexual woman. And anyone 
And then anyone who calls attention to this impact on their parents, again, are pressurized, pressured to recognize the the child's. And this is like sometimes eight-year-old child, children. Yes. I'd I'd like to ask, um, have you, excuse me, the the journalist Abigail Schreier in her book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, is experiencing major sex, uh, sorry, censorship. And have you experienced anything like that so far? No, I'm probably not that important. Uh, <laughs> maybe this podcast will get me censored. But uh, but no, I've, I've not experienced uh, anything quite like that thus far. Um, partly, I think, because my book is, it's not written as a polemic. It's more of a description of, okay, how do we get here? Obviously, I have personal convictions about the the state of play at the moment, but my primary concern in the book was simply to explain how cultures come to authorize the mind over the body, uh, those those kind of things. So I am probably too small a fry to to have been cancelled or censored (laughs) just yet. Well, we'll, we'll, we will see as the book takes off. I'll see. You might have to have a, have a strategy, plan B, when you when you get some hate mail. And hate mail is the ultimate compliment, right? But I wanted to ask you again about the language of, you use the term living a lie. And one of the things that struck me about that is, again, you were talking about the identity. This is my, this is who I am and you must recognize me. But there's also the reverse. If someone says, you must recognize me. I am living a lie. Well, what about the lie that you're imposing on me that I'm supposed to call you a man when you're obviously a woman? And that's forcing me to lie, which is Orwellian and deeply, deeply creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, there are a number of things one can say about that. First of all, the language of, you know, that the Bruce slash Caitlin Jenny use, you know, I'm living a lie as Bruce. I can, I, I can be authentic and truthful when I'm Caitlin. That's, you know, that's expressive individual language I was talking about earlier. You know, if I need to be able to live outwardly that which I feel inwardly, otherwise I'm living a lie, I'm inauthentic. So definitely expressive individual language. Secondly, as, as you point out, it, 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 it creates this, this odd adversarial situation between human beings. Uh, uh, there was one anecdote. I, I drew it from the, the Boston uh, Women's uh, Health Book Collective, uh, which is the they, they produce the sort of the, the Bible of feminism, essentially our bodies, ourselves. Uh, there was an anecdote given there where there's a, a woman who's a lesbian and she's been living with her partner for ten years, and her partner transitions to becoming a man. At which point the, the her friends start telling her, you're straight now, you're living with a man, so you're actually a heterosexual, you're straight. And, and it puts her in this interesting dilemma where for her to affirm her that she's a, a lesbian, which is very important to her identity, for her to affirm that is effectively to deny the identity of her partner. It's, 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 it's to demand that a partner be a woman and not the man that the partner now identifies as. On the other hand, if she affirms her partner as, as a man, she's having to deny her own identity as, as a lesbian. And that's a, that's a classic example of the kind of an extreme example, but a good example of the kind of dilemma that you have, have highlighted. And of course, that tends then to get sort of kicked upstairs to the governmental level. So you end up with this really rather odd situation where an emphasis upon the absolute freedom of the individual to decide who they are ends up having to be policed or enforced by the government. So you're absolutely right. You choose your identity and you, you know, 
you want me to recognize, acknowledge that. Well, I won't do that. So you make that a criminal offense and you get the government to force me to recognize you, the government or my employer. We've seen in Canada, which is really frightening, right? Some of the parents in Canada, you must recognize what your children demand of you. It's, it's, yeah. And as I say, it's odd in that you have a, a sort of essentially what is a radical individual libertarianism defaulting to a kind of authoritarian uh, society at the end of the day, which is which is what we're facing now. Um, uh, not not yet in a hard form in the United States, but it's slowly but surely being enforced in the workplace. And uh, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, even the way I've tried at points answering your questions here indicate that we're all trying to be careful uh, not to not to offend. Uh, and not to find ourselves in very serious trouble for for using the wrong words. Absolutely. I mean, even doing this interview, I, I, I was a little bit leery of thinking, well, you know, do I really want to put my voice, my identity on the internet discussing these highly contentious issues? <laughs> But, um, but but you have to. I mean, what are you, we, we can't we can't be cowed into into not discussing them. That's that's the point. That's the powerful point of your book. And one another another aspect uh, related to the lesbian that you were just discussing and, and identity and so forth and the pressures on her to to conform to these ever changing standards. That you have a very interesting. I think it's either in a footnote or just quoting him, Andrew Sullivan, who's who's a renowned male homosexual activist and is very stalwart in his and one of the pioneers of the whole same-sex marriage issue and he talked about the pressure that he or that he was saying that he felt pressured or, or the idea that he had to say I was equal I am equally attracted to a transgender man which I guess is a man who is a woman yes or is it a woman who's a man it, it would be a woman who's transitioned to being a man okay so he's supposed to so it's a so it's a former woman being a man and he and they were telling and Solomon was saying I'm not attracted to that person that is totally opposite to what I am as a homosexual yeah. man he's like essentially saying so. he's essentially saying that person's still a woman and that's why that would be such a controversial and offensive thing to say in some quarters yeah so he was saying that that I can't even express my own sexuality and my own preferences or 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 again or my, sorry my orientation because that can that I'm condemned for that by the trans trans gender left or the transgender movement yes is there a difference between a transsexual and a trans and transgenderism is it do they prefer the term transsexual or transgender i think is now the the one that's typically used uh, gender of course is being sexual carries with it biological connotations whereas gender is uh, detached from biology and more of a constructed category. So transgender is is regarded as a better term because the last thing you want to talk about uh, when, when we're talking about transgender issues is biology. You don't want to give biology any kind of authority at all. Well, one of, speaking of biology, and again on the subject of transgenderism, which is a huge part of the book, you, you make a fascinating point again with about Jenner. You said the transgenderism perpetuates gender stereotypes of women in particular that a lot of it to me what i find uncomfortable about one of the things is that they seem to equate femininity and womanhood with haircut hairstyles and you know bling and jewelry and uh tight skirts and that kind of thing it's really it's a really offensive view of what of what women are it's just it's like this male fantasy or not even male fantasy just fantasy of 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 women being sort of brainless 
large-breasted and heavily bejeweled nincompoops. I mean, you talk about the the photo spread of of, of Jenner and I think it was Vanity Fair that that was it was sort of a glossy a glossy view of women as as sex pots, and that's that's what it is. It's not, and that's what Jermaine. And you talk about Jermaine Greer and and her reaction to that. I wonder if you could address that. And before you do, I'd like to talk about you use you labeled the term TERFs, T E R capital capital T E R Fs, meaning short for trans trans exclusionary, exclusionary radical feminist is pejorative. And that kind of surprised me because to me, it seems a fairly accurate representation of a perfectly reasonable position of some feminists. That is, they don't consider men who are convinced they're women to be women. You don't even have to be radical feminist or any kind of feminist to find that true. But but you, you consider the word TERFs to be pejorative. Could you talk about that and why... Yes. why yeah, I mean, I don't consider it to be a pejorative. I consider it to be uh, 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 an accurate uh, okay. account of, say, where Germaine Greer is coming from. It's used as a pejorative, though. It's used as a way of trying to demonize those feminists who see transgender males, like women who've transitioned to being men, as uh, essentially, um, oh, sorry, men who've, trans- men who've transitioned to being women, as essentially men who are trying to usurp or grab hold of the the sort of history of oppression and marginalization of women for the, for their own use. It's a sort of male subversion of what it means to be female, if you like. And uh, while I would consider that to be an entirely uh, reasonable position to hold, and I think Jermaine Greer is, uh, uh, and uh, J.K. Rowling, I think, would fall into the same category. This term "turf" has been coined as a way of of demonising that position. It functions, if you like, in some way as the as the term "racist" would function mm. in other discourse. Oh, now, there are there have been attempts made to claim that no turf is just purely descriptive. We're not trying to demonise anybody by this. Well, the interesting thing is, uh, and somebody you know, correlated it's like describing somebody as a Jew. Well, the interesting thing is I've, I've got a lot of Jewish friends who don't mind describing themselves as Jews. Uh, I know a couple of uh, trans-exclusionary ra- ra- uh, reactionary feminists who do not like to be described as TERFs precisely because it's a term of opprobrium. It's an attempt to, to marginalize them, to, to shunt them uh, off the, the frame of uh, reasonable discussion. So, yeah, it's very much a, a pejorative term. Hmm. Well, it's interesting, the idea that, that the way it breaks down is trans-exclusionary. Well, if you're saying I, I am a woman and I prefer not to have men call themselves women. Yes, I do want to exclude you from the category of, of my womanhood because you're not you're not a fellow woman as far as, you know, it just seems like, of course, there have to be, the idea that exclusionary is inherently evil instead of just being a category. Yeah, and but, again, it comes down to that sort of expressive individualism again because the the notion of being expressive individual in some cases, I can be whoever I want to be and and you can't tell me otherwise. That's the essence of of individual freedom in that context. And and so to exclude me, if I want to be part of your category, to exclude me from your category, that's an act of oppression. That's bigotry. You shouldn't really do that. Well, I think what's hilarious about it is that it's it's an intra-feminist or intra-left internecine battle because they, they say they include the word radical. They don't include just women who are, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a, a an accurate or initial initialism for women who are not neither feminist nor radical 
that they're there, but they are exclusionary, but it just seems that they're, they're, they're trying to, de- and that term deep platforming is perfect for what happened to Greer. I mean, here she was this Doyenne, this famous pioneering, pretty brilliant. I mean, for clever woman, although she's pretty foul mouthed in many ways, but you have a, an interesting um, quote from her that, that one, one can't even quote because it's in, in the book you use uh, asterisk, I believe, but she talked about, a, a spaniel. I could. I could wear. I could be floppy ears, and I could put a leash around my neck, but I still wouldn't actually be a spaniel because she's just talking about you, you can't just wear diamonds and then you're suddenly a woman. It's it's, it's fascinating what's happened to her. I mean, she basically because she's she's older now and she's just kind of given up. I think she's just basically. I don't. I don't have the energy for this battling anymore. That's what I read about her a couple of years ago. But 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 I guess the mantle has been taken up by J.K. Rowling. But. Yes, um, I mean, and, and Greer, of course, was in, in many ways the uh, uh, the bête noire uh, twenty, thirty years ago. Uh, she was the, the the feminist par excellence in the English speaking yeah. world, and now she's she's been marginalised by these these more radical figures who've emerged. Yeah, she's a non non person for them, which again is your point about the lack of respect for what has gone before. I mean, here she wrote these books that opened up this whole field. I mean, a lot of these women wouldn't have their positions as professors if it weren't for people like Jermaine Greer that that established the whole field of feminist studies and women's studies. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Carl Truman about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Um. You write in the book this, criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia, that of transgenderism is transphobia. The use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of of the irrational and points toward underlying bigotry on the parts of those who hold such views. And you go on to say this kind of thinking underlies even decisions of the Supreme Court. Could you elaborate on that in terms of the term of the, of the, the Supreme Court itself marginalizing American citizens. Yes, uh, I mean it. It really comes from the uh, the decision in the Supreme Court, um, uh, United States v. v Windsor, which was the the Supreme Court decision, I think, in 2013 that overturned the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, Defense of Marriage Act, signed into law by Bill Clinton in the 90s, uh, made it very clear that marriage was between one man and and one woman. That was challenged uh, in uh, the the second decade of this century by uh, a woman who'd married another woman. Her partner had died, and uh, she'd married her in Canada, but was living in New York State and wanted to get the the death benefits from her partner that would normally be available to somebody who was married. And uh, at, at a point in the, the process, uh, the Obama administration decided not to, uh, to pursue the, the action uh, any further, uh, and therefore the, the provisions of the De- uh, Defense of Marriage Act that refer to marriage as being between one man and woman effectively fell at that point. What was interesting, though, was, it, was, was the rationale that the court offered in that case for the decision, and that was that uh, the, the, only, the only reason one would maintain the idea that marriage was between one man and one woman was an issue of, uh, of what's called constitutional animus, 
which we might translate into a more sort of demotic form by saying, you know, irrational bigotry. In short, what the court was saying there, that there are no reasons for opposing gay marriage uh, that don't ultimately reduce to a kind of irrational hatred of gay people or an irrational bigotry against gay people. So, for example, uh, the conservative Jew or the conservative Muslim or the conservative Christian who would want to argue that actually we have principled religious objections to this, the court's effectively saying, well, you you might say that, but the only reason you hold those views or the only reason you're offering that rationale is that deep down inside you're actually a bigot. So, that's actually a pretty important legal ruling. I mean, it's, it's important because it paves the way for Obergefell versus Hodges 2015, which finds gay marriage are protected by the Constitution, but also because it gives you an interesting insight into how even members of the Supreme Court are thinking about uh, opposition to gay marriage, and that is that it can only be driven by a kind of irrational bigotry. So what what you know, it's not surprising, if you like, that in the culture we, we attach phobia to the ends of these words when the Supreme Court is operating with a very similar uh, notion and model of what's going on as well. Yeah, I think that people were surprised that Neil Gorsuch ruled on the Bostock ruling. It's not like he's being acculturated to uh, the idea that, well, it's all we, – we sophisticated people of the Supreme Court extend all of these – we're basically ditching two thousand years of history yeah. for the for the greater good of what's called what the cultivated class believes. Yes, yeah, so and the Bostock ruling is interesting because although uh, Justice Gorsuch was very careful to say this is a narrow ruling uh, addressing the workplace. Uh, what he effectively did was was recognize the idea of gender as a constructed category. He, he granted legal status to uh, the idea of transgenderism. And it's hard to believe that, that the narrowness of that ruling will not stop the, uh, the concept that's been legitimated there from impacting other rulings on, say, religious freedom, uh, First Amendment cases, those kind of things. So it's a very, very, uh, very, very significant ruling by, by, by the Supreme Court, authored by, by Justice Gorsuch this year. Yeah, and the workplace is schools, and the workplace now is in the danger of epidemics is the home. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, m- well, moving along from trans- transgenderism, because there's so much else in your book I'd like to discuss – you, you say the book grew out of a smaller pro- projected project of on the work of Philip Reef. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, Reef? yep, absolutely correctly. <laughs> Could you tell us about the concept of his that you found especially useful and applicable to our era? For instance, and this is a big bunch of concepts, he says, the triumph of the, sera- the therapeutic psychological man, the anti-culture and death works. And I know that's a lot to handle, but he's a pretty rich source of... And also, I'd like to ask you about him. Is he recognized still? Um, I mean, is I mean, is he is he is he is he taught? Is he a figure of note, uh, so forth? Uh, to answer the last question first, I would say Reef is certainly known about and and discussed in 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 various circles. I think partly because his 1966 book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, has proved remarkably prescient relative to many of the things that have gone on in society. I don't think he's as well known uh, and as 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 oft read as he should be. And one of the hopes is that I hope that my book will encourage others to go off and and read some Reef because he has 
has some very interesting say. And he's not a Christian. Reef was a secular Jewish figure, uh, a, a somewhat critical sort of disciple of Sigmund Freud. So he's not your archetypal uh, Christian conservative figure at all. He's he's an interesting person. Um, talking about the concepts that he introduced, the, the idea of the triumph of the therapeutic is is really the idea that again flowing out of expressive individualism. The idea that we live in a world where we tend now to conceptualize happiness uh, in terms of an inner feeling of psychological well being or uh, and uh, you know, welfare. So. He would say that that's 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 different from earlier generations. Earlier generations uh, found happiness in something external to themselves. Think of my grandfather again. My grandfather's satisfaction was found not so much in what he did day to day in his work. He was a sheet metal worker. It was very repetitive work. The satisfaction he got from his work was not a kind of warm, fuzzy psychological buzz from from banging on pieces of metal all day. It was from getting paid uh, a decent day's wage for an honest day's work and being able to put bread on the table, shoes on his children's feet. I, I said, for me, of course, it's, it's much more that buzz I get when I teach. Yeah, that's where my happiness is. And, and Reef would say that we represent two different kinds of worlds, that my world is, is very much moving in the therapeutic direction, where it's my inner feelings that are the most direct and important thing. And Reef says that has an interesting impact on culture because culture then ceases to be that which trains you to conform to the to its outward standards, its outward institutions. And culture becomes that which is to pander to your inner psychological needs. And he makes an interesting comment where he says, as, as the therapeutic culture arises, you can expect two institutions to fade in importance or to plunge into crisis and two institutions to emerge as, as to replace them. He says, what you'll find is that the traditional religion and the idea of the nation of patriotism will fade away because traditional religion and patriotism, they require you to sacrifice yourself or some part of yourself for a good that is beyond you and independent of you. Uh, so, uh, and, and we see that I think today, when when you think of you know, religion, is clearly in a lot of trouble in the United States and in the West in general. Uh, patriotism has become a very questionable virtue for many people. Uh, Reef says, as they fade away, two other institutions will will become far more prominent. He says, um, hospitals, because hospitals make you feel better; they make you well, and entertainment because entertainment makes you feel good as well that's why it's entertainment you know, we're recording this in the midst of covid it's fascinating that the covid has highlighted two things one the the paramount importance of the medical profession in american culture Air, you know they are the heroes of the day it's not soldiers it's it's medical people and the second thing is how the entertainment industry has been prioritized over church and synagogue in in the policies of lockdowns. Just this week, uh, I noticed uh, a, sto- a new story claiming that in, in California, churches are under severe restrictions, while strip clubs can pretty much operate as normal. And and, and I, I saw that and thought that, you know, Reef would say that's exactly what happens. 
that's exactly what happens when the therapeutic culture arises and, and individual feelings become all important. Society ultimately reconfigures itself around that and old institutions, church and nation, fade away. New institutions rise in importance. Those who care for the body, the medical profession, and those who entertain us, make us feel good. So that's the kind of the triumph of the therapeutic he's, he's talking about. Um, psychological- well, apropos, apropos, I was going to say apropos of your discussion about the decline of, of in the, the military, for example, and a, a, an intersection of this is the case of Bradley Manning, that he not only does he betray his country, but oh well, that's he's really troubled because he's he's a transgender person, and that became the subject, not treason, not yeah. not exposing other people to danger by revealing their 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 work with the U.S. military and that they might get assassinated as a result. It was oh well, he he really he really wants to be Chelsea now, and that's and we can't have him imprisoned because it's dangerous for him there and so. Forth. Yes, and more <laughs> than that, a- notice he's a hero. Yeah, because he betrayed the military. <laughs> And because he's come out as, as transgender, uh, he's valorized for that, which again yeah. points to, to the therapeutic or the, the, the transformations of culture that take place in the light of the therapeutic that Philip Reeve points to. One thing I'll give an example, I was looking at the, the Daily Princetonian site, the website of the, of the newspaper of Princeton, where you did spend some time, and I hope we'll discuss that a little bit later, but one of the things there's this young man or young person that that says that his family is homophobic and that they're they're they don't want him in their home. I mean, it's there he's troubled at home because of the family disapproves of his of his coming out or he's afraid to come out and so forth. But he's demanding that Princeton University provide him with emergency housing. And my reaction is a the infant the, the the fact that the boy is so infant infantile that he can't think well maybe i should emancipate myself and put myself through college and not and because he talks in the letter in the open letter about that the that he doesn't want to sacrifice the fact that his parents are paying for his education and that a that princeton has to have this mission creep of providing him with housing because he can't get along with his parents and it just seems so narcissistic and self-involved about what what is owed to him by princeton versus how he would handle himself as a, as a thinking adult and be brave and empowered and, and declare to his family, this is my orientation. Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice my Ivy League education. I'll go to a state school. I'll work my way through college myself. But no, he's demanding sort of this, 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 this nanny state reaction. It's from everyone. It's really strange. There's no self-reflection on that at all. And Princeton is, 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 is basically kowtowing to this boy, this young person, and saying, okay, well, well, we'll make it easier for such people to have emergency housing and so forth. Yeah, and that's a classic example, that Reef would say, of the institution becoming uh, a therapist, essentially. I mean, obviously, it's tragic when a young man finds himself to be in a position uh, of such, uh, in, in such an antagonistic position towards his parents. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like a very tragic situation, but uh, it's not the institution's responsibility to, to pick up the pieces. Uh, I always remember when I was when I was at college, just it was 30, 35 years ago. Um, it was uh, I was never left in any doubt, and I went to you know I went to University of Cambridge, which is a sort of the equivalent, I suppose, of the Ivy League, but in the in the UK. Uh, I was never left in any doubt that uh, uh, it was a privilege for me to be there, and if I didn't want to be there, I could leave, or they could they, they'd kick me out. Uh, there is a, a, a again a sea change that has taken place, uh, where uh, institutions have become uh, the instruments of the individual 
rather and, and places where the individual can perform rather than uh, the individual finding uh, themselves at the institution to be formed by the institution. And I think you know, what, what you're pointing to there also points to that kind of uh, pathology of the therapeutic culture. It'll be interesting to see in the age of how long the pandemic goes on that you can't perform as well your identity if everybody's in a Zoom situation. You'd have to really force, by the way, here I am, and I'm going to introduce something about my identity into this conversation. I suppose you could, but it just seems that there's less wardrobe involvement and fewer opportunities to demonstrate physically and that kind of thing. And yeah. I wonder yeah. If, it'll, if that'll have any effect on the whole identity situation that, who knows? Have to I mean, we're in we're in unknown territory as far as uh, COVID and and all of the the virtual interactions we're engaging with. Well, another another two concepts of of reef are the anti culture and death works, and I wonder if you could discuss those. Yeah, these are two closely connected concepts in in reef that he he introduces really in his later work. Uh, the anti culture it, it, it's really rooted in his understanding of culture in general and. Reef sees culture as the means by which values, traditions, attitudes, etc., are transmitted from one generation to the next. So there's a strongly institutional dimension to that. You know, we would say, you know, government institutions or the army or the family or the church. There are all these established institutions that that exist to to pass on values to the rising generation, to form people, we might say. Uh, Reef says the interesting thing about the, the, the therapeutic culture is that, that that kind of gets flipped on its head, that uh, no longer is it the case that uh, these institutions are to transmit values. Uh, it's that they are to conform to the therapeutic needs of the people. So, a good example would be, you know, think of education. You know, it, it, do you go to university in order to learn and be shaped and turned into a responsible adult to be put out into society to fulfill a function that will, will benefit society in general? Or do you go to college in order to have your psychological needs met, to be protected from anything that might offend you or upset you, to be affirmed uh, in yourself? The example you drew from Princeton just now would be a good example of the latter. And Reef would say in, in that situation, you, have, you effectively have an anti-culture. And what he means by that is culture has become something that, that, that stands in opposition to that that's gone before. There's an iconoclasm here. Uh, if culture is the problem, if if history is the problem, if the values of the past are the problem, then the task of culture uh, in the present is to get out from under those things, to repudiate them, to reject them. And, and Reef won't even dignify that by calling it a culture. He says, actually, it's an anti-culture. It's a rejection. It's a rejection of the past. It's essentially built on repudiation. And that connects to the notion of death works, because the other thing Reef does, he says, you know, when, when you look at, at what he would call the priests of culture, typically the priests of culture, they're the elite. Uh, you know, when you go to college, you're taught by professors. Uh, government policy is set by the elite people who are elected and operate in D.C. Uh, the elites are responsible for culture. And typically, in the past, that's meant the elites are responsible for passing along the values of the past. Uh, not anymore, Reef says, in the anti-culture. The, the elites uh, invert their role, essentially. The role of the elites is actually 
to make ridiculous, to destroy, to shatter, to repudiate, to make absurd the values uh, uh, of the past. And they do that through this thing that Reef calls death works. And death works typically are those things that kind of take the idiom of that which was considered to be valuable in earlier cultures and makes them ridiculous or disgusting. The example I use in the book, uh, forgive me for the slight crudity here, the example I use in the book is Andres Serrano's infamous uh, artwork, uh, Piss Christ, which is a crucifix submerged in a bottle of, uh, of Serrano's own urine. And uh, I think it was exhibited at the New York Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art or one of the, the very elite uh, New York venues for displaying art. Reef would, would look at that and with, say... With government money, I think that was the issue too, that he got a grant. He got, for he the, got a government grant, which caused the, the big explosion. But uh, Reef would say that's, uh, that's a death work because that's taking something that the previous culture considered to be sacred. Previous culture kind of built itself upon. You know, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus crucifixion, a very terrifying but holy moment. And you know, making it dirty and ridiculous. Uh, I think Reef's phrase is, you know, taking the sacramental and making it excremental. And that's a, a sophisticated example. But Reef would also say, you know, soap operas that, that mock the family, that caricature the family, that that undermine the family, that make parents into buffoons or bigots or make them look ridiculous. Uh, that's a death work too. That's taking one of the institutions that has been important to the stability, the maintenance and the, the replication of society over the years and making it ridiculous. Uh, more... Yeah, and sometimes they're not even aware. I read once that, that because in Brazil, the soap operas or the telenovelas, I guess they were that they often didn't, they showed rich people with no children, and that was supposed to have led to a, a noticeable drop in the birth rate there that, because people associated, started to associate children with, with poverty. Or with, uh, poverty. And that, that's a death work. It, there you, you're taking something that the previous culture thought was important and not simply, mod, I mean, all the, you know, culture is always modifying culture. You know, generations change values as again, but you're not simply changing a value there. You're actually repudiating it, and not by argument, but by taste. You're, you're transforming public taste through these, these death works in such a way that the values of the previous culture are not simply modified or accommodated to new circumstances, but are actually repudiated as being disgusting, oppressive, or ridiculous. Yeah, there's some quote from Oscar Wilde, I think, about to render something uh, to get rid of some, to reform is to render is to simply re render something ridiculous, or to say, or to say it's out of it's not fashionable. I think was the, was the quote. But um, uh, apropos of, of the, your your comments about the in, the importance of institutions that Yuval Levin writes has read a new book about that, and my reaction to it was kind of this is so touching that he thinks that they can still be resurrected. <laughs> I just wonder if that's so, because if, if, if the pillars of these institutions, for example, I mean, I, I don't like to give her the airtime, but Ocasio-Cortez seems to think that, well, Congress isn't really, that it's, it's just like this, 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 this hissy fit. If you don't pass my trillion dollar program, then you're, you're a failure as an institution and you have to jump to my tune. And you know, instead of saying, I'm a freshman, I need to learn how this institution works. And just, it's just an end run around 
but of course, maybe she's right. You know, maybe it is a, a, a stodgy, archaic, no longer functioning, dysfunctional institution that does need fresh blood and all of that. And they, there's always that argument that they can always make that we're actually re, we're rejuvenating rather than destroying. I don't do, do you buy that any of that or? It's yeah. You know, it's it's. I mean, she's a, a popular hate figure on the right, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I do think that there is, yeah, certainly for guys of my generation, uh, you know, people of my generation, there's there's a certain value to we put on reserve. There's a certain value we put on uh, waiting in line, serving your time before you have authority. We've all behaved arrogantly in our time. Most of us haven't done it in Congress, though. Most of us have done it in fairly harmless environments. So my, my concern there would be, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, the... Uh, Maybe she's just being blown up by by conservative media into a particularly influential hate figure. Maybe she doesn't have that much influence. But there is a sense in which she does, again, kind of epitomize the sort of world that, that Reef anticipates and that expressive individualism points towards. And that is a world that, that prioritizes youth as wise because age is what makes you bigoted and screws you up. Yeah. And uh, a better example even might be the, the young teenage girl who's become the uh, poster child of the uh, the ecological movement. Oh, over Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, I think. Greta Thunberg, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, on one level, uh, I, I'm not opposed to be to caring about the environment at all. What interests me is that we we've invested such authority in such a young person who, even if they're correct, doesn't really have the knowledge to know that they're correct. If I could put it that way. But again, that's a great example of the kind of anti-culture that's developed where wisdom, learning, that which we've inherited from the past to deploy in the present has become seen as as that's a burden or a disadvantage. What we need is people who are unspoiled by previous culture to tell us. And what's funny is that she's usually it's kind of an appealing young person who's sweet and genuine, but she's such a scold and here and here and she here she is addressing the United Nations. This is this is the greatest platform, probably one of the greatest platforms in the world. And she's saying, you're not listening to us. I thought, well, aren't, aren't we? <laughs> you're here. You are in the, in the, in the, the, the speaking to the United Nations. And then, and also she says, well, we need to we need to listen to science, but every but in the meanwhile, we're supposed to all the children should boycott. So that's how she became known was boy, demanding that have a school boycott of children not refusing to go to school. I thought, well, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's, it, and again, Reef would look at that and say, this is the you, you know, when culture dies, what replaces it? And there's a sense in which what we have at the moment is the negation. All we've got is is people defining themselves really by what they are against at this point, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and that leads to these kind of contradictions that you're pointing to. Yeah, and the fact that they feel disempowered when they're they're incredibly empowered. I mean, you can't you oh. turn on the BBC and there she is and so forth. But one more thing about Reef is, could you discuss his concept of the first, second, and third worlds? Especially, apparently, because we don't really have a first world anymore, do we? Or it's, it's basically the second and third that are in conflict. Yeah, this is this is Reef's taxonomy of, of of really of different kinds of societies, and there's a sense in which the taxonomy is a bit clean cut. 
uh, any given culture is probably going to have a bit of a mix of all three, but there'll be one that's that's dominant. First worlds are uh, worlds in a, in a way like ancient Greece, and, and Reef would say that that the first world is is grounded in in a in in some kind of mythology. It's grounded in a view of fate, uh, and what that means is that when uh, when when it when a society frames its moral codes, it's looking beyond itself as a basis for doing that. And ancient Sparta would be a good example. Uh, the legend in ancient Sparta was that the law code came from uh, the first king Lycurgus, and Lycurgus received the law code from the oracle at Delphi, who received it from the gods. Uh, well, that means that you know, if if a child in ancient Sparta says, you know, Dad, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go to this place when, when the king tells us? The, the father can say, well, we do it because it's in the law. And the law came via Lycurgus and the oracle Delphi from the gods. And therefore, the law has a, a, an authority beyond our personal tastes, beyond the way we want to organize society. Actually, there's a, there's a law to which we have to conform. That's the first world. Second world is kind of like that, but in a more sophisticated sort of form, tends to be monotheistic for, for reefs. So we're really thinking of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, where you have law codes that are grounded in some kind of divine revelation. You know, why is why is it wrong to kill? You might, you know, the young Jewish boy might ask a rabbi that, or a young Christian boy might ask his minister that. Why is it wrong to kill? Well, you know, it's wrong to kill because the Ten Commandments say, "Thou shalt not kill," and the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses, and they actually reflect God's character. And therefore, uh, not killing is an important part of uh, of reflecting God's character. Again, like with the first world, what you have is a a social order. Reef would say, a social order built on a sacred order. The social order justifies its values, its law codes, by reference to something beyond itself. Third world is different. Reef says the third world is uh, a world where there is no transcendent. There is nothing beyond the world. And that means that cultures and cultural codes have to be justified on the basis of themselves. So, you know, young boy says to dad, why is it wrong for me to steal candy from the, 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 the candy store at the corner of the road? And dad says, uh, because the law of the land says so. And the lad says, well, where does the law of the land come from? And, and dad says, well, it comes from people getting together and deciding that's a bad thing to do. And the lad says, well, so what? I, I beg to differ here. I'd quite like to get that candy. And those people have no right to oppress me with their invented morality about, about stealing. Reef says that third worlds uh, are inherently unstable because they have nothing beyond themselves by which to justify themselves. And he says, uh, and that means that morality will be in continual flux because morality will really default to whatever the tastes of the moment are. There'll be no stability there. And were he alive today, I think he'd look at the landscape and say, yeah, this is the kind of, this, this is a third world. Uh, how do we frame, how do we, we talk about sexual morality today? Well, Con consent. It's the expressive individual notion that, you know, as long as, as the people engaged in this activity are all consenting to it, that's okay then. Uh, so, and Reef would say, and that means that there is no such thing then as a sort of transcendent sexual code. Uh, all you have are popular tastes.
Well, that famous quote from the, around 1910 about don't care what people do as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses and all of that. Yes, yeah. Uh, it, it's a kind of, or, or the Jefferson statement, as long as it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, applied to sort of morality as a whole, if you like, at that point. Well, now that we've dealt with Reef, could you tell us a bit about another thinker that you talk about at length in the book and at, to profitable length for the reader? How, how uh, that's Charles Taylor and his theories, for example, the social imaginary and the politics of recognition, which help us understand, as you put it, why certain identities, e.g. LGBTQ+, enjoy great cachet today, while others, e.g. religious conservatives, are increasingly marginalized. And, and Taylor sort of predicted that this, or, or his categories help us understand why that's so. Yeah, Taylor's very useful from, from this perspective. Uh, Taylor's idea of the social imaginary gets to uh, a very important point, and, and, and that, that is that most of us, in fact all of us, we, we live in the world the way we do because we imagine it to be a certain way. We don't work from first principles all the time. We, we, have a, a, we, we relate to the world intuitively or instinctively, if you like. And Taylor says it, it's important to realize that. So a lot of our attitudes are not shaped by profound moral thinking that we've reasoned from first principles, but are shaped by the tastes of the world around us. The, the, you know, a soap opera can, can shape the way we imagine the world uh, and the significance of certain behaviors within that world, but far more for most people than, than reading a very heavy tome on things. Uh, you know, I would take gay marriage as an example. Why, do most, uh, you know, why did gay marriage uh, come to be accepted in, in the end so quickly in America? I don't think it was because a lot of people sat down and read massive tomes of uh, sexual theory and identity theory, etc., uh, etc. Et it's because uh, a program like Will and Grace presented a gay couple in a very attractive and, and amenable kind of light. It shaped the way people imagined the world, if you like. So Taylor's very useful because he's he gets to the point that, uh, and the point that I wanted to get to in the book is, you know, why do ordinary people think this way? Why do ordinary people think the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, makes sense? Ordinary people have not sat in Judith Butler's gender theory class. Hmm. They're just ordinary people in the street. Well, they, they, they intuitively think it, it makes sense. Well, why? Because all kinds of things are going on in the culture that shape the way they imagine the world to be and the way the world should be. So the social imaginary was is Taylor's way of saying we need to we need to realize that most people don't think theoretically, even about the most important things in life. They think instinctively and intuitively in ways that society has shaped them to think. The politics- well, I think apropos of that, I was just going to say in the Windsor case that I read once that that appeal that was very shrewdly chosen because it didn't seem fair. It was Americans have a very strong foundational belief in fairness and the fact that she had to pay an enormous estate tax when her partner died and a, a heterosexual bereaved person would not pay that same amount. Just, that's just not fair. And that, yeah. that, that was crucial in the whole issue, I guess. That's a good example because we, we assume that fairness is a good thing and it, and it is a good thing. Mm. Uh, and we, one could expand it and say, you know, the language of love that was used in the, uh, uh, the gay marriage debate, you know, love wins, hashtag love wins. You know, who, who, 
who doesn't want love to win? Um, yeah, and you know, I remember when when the day the the judgment was announced in Obergefell versus Hodges, a judgment that I happened to disagree with, but seeing the faces of, of the happy gay couples on the steps of the, of the Supreme Court, you know, it was hard not to have your heart strings pulled at that. You know, who wants to stand in the way of of other people's personal happiness? It's it's part of the way we we imagine. Our ethical imagination, you would like, if you like, uh, of the world. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, politics of recognition. One of the things that I was interested in trying to get at in the book was, you know, okay, uh, why is it not enough that uh, gay couples be allowed to get married? Why are we now in a situation where even to disagree with that? personally renders you uh, a somewhat egregious person in, in society as a whole and taylor has this this interesting point he actually draws it really from the the german philosopher hegel uh, taylor uh, sees and i think correctly sees human beings as you know there are two things that that we sort of we have we want. We want to be free. We, we we intuitively feel we're free and we want to be free. So we want to be able to express ourselves in the way we choose. On the other hand, however, there's, there's something else that we want that's not immediately compatible with that first drive or desire. And that's we want to belong. It's one thing to be free, but we also want people to affirm us. We want to belong. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that leads to this notion of, uh, that, that Taylor has of, of recognition. In other words, for me to be truly me, for me to be really fulfilled as a self, it's, it's actually not enough for me simply to, to act out my inner desires in public. I want you, Hope, to recognize me as a real person when I do that. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's, we think of, of teenagers. You talk to the typical teenager about the way they dress, and they'll probably tell you, the way I dress, it, it's an expression of the inner me. It's a statement about who I am. But then you notice that every teenager dresses like every other teenager. And you bring to us, yeah, it's an expression of who you are inside, but it's also the membership card of a club. You want to belong. You want to express yourself and you want to belong at the same time. Bring that up to the level of society where, you know, a gay couple get married and they go to a baking. Well, let's say they're, they're preparing to get married and they go to a, a cake shop, as we know has happened in, in, in a famous uh, Supreme Court case in the United States. They go to the cake shop and they say to the, uh, the baker, bake us a cake for our wedding. And the baker happens to be, let's say he's a, he's a Southern Baptist and he's got pretty strong opinions. It happens on gay marriage. He likes these guys. He's known them for many years. And he says to them, uh, look, uh, I can't bake you a cake because that would contravene my, my religious convictions. Uh, but, you know, Dave at, at the cake shop at the end of the road, he has no problem. He'll, he'll bake you a cake and, and I'll bake you a cake for any other occasion. Now, a lot of conservative Christians would look at that and think, well, that, that guy seems, to, the baker seems to be offering a, a fair compromise here. Uh, he's, he's, he's not deny, he's not trying to make these men starve, but he's acting in accordance with his religious principles. For a conservative Christian, what seems to be going on here, it's a question of religious freedom. For the gay couple, though, it's a question of recognition. What the cake baker is actually saying by refusing to bake a cake for their wedding is, I don't recognize you for who you are. 
I'm denying your your personhood in a pretty serious way. And that's why the, these issues are so explosive, because on the one hand, you've got religious freedom, which is very important in, in, in the history of American culture. On the other hand, you've also got recognition and belonging at stake on the other side. Uh, and so Taylor's politics of recognition was helped me see why, you know, tolerance is not enough. Uh, you can tolerate somebody by saying, well, I'm going to tolerate what you do, but I'm not going to approve it. And that means I'm not really going to recognize you as the person you think you are. Only equality, only equality will give that, that full recognition, that full granting of dignity to the person that they are looking for. And, and so that's where the politics of recognition became very helpful uh, to me. And I think... Oh, well, I'd like, I'd like to give a possible, a real-life application of that, because in here in Oregon, there was a similar case to Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop, that there was a, a, a small establishment called, I think it was called Melissa's Sweet Cakes, and a lesbian couple, of course, went in and demanded a cake, and they, the couple would, said politely, we prefer not to do. And so what happened was the Bureau of Labor, the government, came in and, and destroyed the business. They, they had there was a fine of $180,000, which, which is an exorbitant sum. And it was all, I think, that part of the problem for me with the, the psychological affirmation of, of the whole LGBTQ um view is that it's so vindictive towards people that won't that won't provide that recognition it wasn't just that we're going to sue we're going to you're also the argument was we have been psychologically damaged it wasn't just discrimination it was that the, their argument was we have experienced psychological damage I thought, what f fragile psyches do these two women have that there's that they can't they can't that they're just shattered by the, the lack of a cake it just seemed like how does that make your community look strong and affirmative and powerful and self-assured if you're just collapse into into you know psychological fragility and damage from this this simple commercial transaction or lack thereof it just was bizarre and also the fact that you have to bankrupt the person you can't just walk out in high dudgeon you have to ensure that you've destroyed their livelihood which is just amazing yeah it's it's extremely vindictive but in some ways predictable within within this kind of psychologized notion of the self uh you know, violence is psychological. It's verbal mm -hmm. in, in that sort of register. And so while I, I, I don't agree with that at all, I could certainly see where it's coming from. And, th and this is the problem. This is why freedom of speech and freedom of religion are now under huge pressure because Christianity maintains certain sexual codes. Well, those sexual codes fly in the face of certain sexually constructed identities. So Christianity is seen as as denying uh, certain kinds of people recognition, and and that is increasingly in society seen as a as a very serious thing, akin to racism, if you like. So mm. these are very troubling waters into which religious conservatives are moving at the at the current time. The psychologized well, that, that, self is is very fragile on that from that perspective. Yeah, it's very it's a very brittle brittle personality type, yeah, I think yeah. that is it's and it must be on edge it must be hard to live like that that I'm constantly aware of I must constantly be aware of perceived slights and discriminations everywhere and under every every circumstance but but this brings up the quote from about another thinker who you discussed Alistair McIntyre and I'd like to read this quote which is related to this this issue about identity and so forth and you say McIntyre Alistair McIntyre again Alistair 
McIntyre is useful because in a series of books starting in the early 1980s, he has repeatedly argued that modern ethical discourse has broken down because it rests ultimately on incommensurable narratives and that claims to moral truth are really expressions of emotional preference. These insights are extremely helpful in understanding both the fruitless nature and extreme polarizing rhetoric of many of the great moral debates of our time, not least surrounding matters of sex and identity. And I'd like to ask, um, does the argument of Alexander McIntyre that claims to moral truth are really expressions of emotional preference make him kind of an outlier among natural law theorists? For example, wouldn't Robert P. George take issue with the fact that that moral truth are just is just an emotional preference? I mean, that he would, George would argue that I would think that, that they're moral truths that are rock solid and are not based on preference, that they, that they can be found and discerned. Yes. Is, uh, is McIntyre, is he, is he somewhat controversial with his own natural law community for that? I, I'm not familiar enough with the debates about McIntyre and the natural law community really to comment on that. But I think what, what McIntyre is getting at is he's not sort of saying that, uh, uh, you know, all of our claims are, are merely emotional preference. He's, he's making, in some ways, a more subtle point, and that is, unless we agree on on the foundational narrative uh, of existence, unless we agree on the basic principles of uh, uh, of who we are and what the world is in which we live, then. Uh, we will find ourselves, first of all, unable to really have constructive conversations on things. So, for example, abortion would be a good example. Uh, if if we don't agree on what a human person is, then pro-life and pro-choice people are really talking past each other on that. If, the, if there's no agreement even on, on the nature of human personhood, there can be no constructive engagement between the two sides on uh, uh, on. Uh, the issue of abortion. Secondly, I think he's saying that for those really who deny any kind of meta-narrative, any kind of foundation, then really what it comes down to is when they make a claim about right or wrong, they are making a statement about emotional preference. Somebody who has no meta-narrative or has no metaphysics, has no natural, you know, idea of the natural law, when they say they're opposed to abortion, what they're really saying is they personally find abortion distasteful. Uh, so I, I think what McIntyre there, he's not quite... I don't think he's proposing an ethical theory so much as he's describing the landscape in which we find ourselves in the public square today, where really there's very little, to some extent, no agreements even on what the foundations of human existence are that we can then build our ethics on and have ethical discussions in light of. Well, I think an example of that in terms of people having incredibly divergent worldviews and yet who do do discuss things and on on, re, on on scholarly levels and are actually could be friends and colleagues is, is I mentioned Robert George, but he he's a friend of of one of the other figures in your book, the philosopher his his Princeton colleague and fellow philosopher Peter Singer. And George repeatedly re- defends Singer's right to to express his views. So George found finds his Singer's views on infanticide abhorrent. And could you tell us a little bit about Singer and his views on infanticide and abortion? And and is he an example of probably the leading example of expressive individual carried to his logical conclusions? If he's saying that that well, he 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 just seems to me a fascinating figure in that 
he's so much he's rather sinister compared to other people in your book who, who you example who say you argue exemplify or, or pioneer the idea of expressive individualism such as William Wordsworth and John Jacques Rousseau what yes. is Peter's that's a strange it seems a sort of strange trajectory from a solid pretty decent human being of Wordsworth to some pretty horrifying ideas that Peter Singer yes. has. Although there, there is an interesting connection between, we won't could argue, between Rousseau and Singer in that Rousseau had all five of his children taken pretty early in their lives to the local orphanage and left there, which was certainly a death sentence. Uh, hmm. So one could actually, when one looks at Singer, say, yeah, there's a certain, in, in the way Rousseau behaved, there's a certain Singer-type logic there. Singer's view of, of abortion rests on a couple of things. One, he doesn't think that that he he doesn't deny that life starts at conception. What he denies is that what is conceived is a person. Personhood only really begins to exist for singer uh, for children at the age of I think of about two years when children start to become more self-aware, become more intentional, develop a sort of concept of moving themselves into the future. Uh, singer would say prior to that time. They're not really persons, and you know why would we accord? Why would we accord a newborn child that, that really lacks any developed sense of self-awareness, any more right to life than we would grant a cow? And we routinely kill cows that are more self-aware than the newborns. We we routinely kill them for the for the trivial reason that we want to eat them. So Singer's view is that uh, the right to life, if you like, adheres to to persons, and a baby is not a person until there's a, a developed sense of self-awareness, uh, which the other side of, uh, of his thinking then is, so uh, why why would abortion be a good thing? Or why would even infanticide be a good thing? Well, yeah, I always wonder, why is he even arguing this? What's the purpose of this? Of this? Well, his, his, his view is, uh, at this point, he's, he's quite a utilitarian. And he's very interested in, in, in that, I, I think, rather difficult to quantify. Those utilitarians usually pretty confident they can quantify it this idea of the sort of the the gross amount of happiness and he would say you know a, a young couple that have uh uh they have a child and the child is born with severe disabilities and it becomes very clear to that couple that they're going to have to spend a lifetime looking after this child and the child is never really going to develop into what Singer would think of as a person even. Child is going to be heavily dependent and that child's going to be a drag upon their happiness. Mm. And therefore euthanizing the child might actually be the best thing to do. Uh, not so much if you like to put the child out of its misery, but to put the parents out of misery. They'll be happy without the child than they are with the child. So at that point, uh, euthanizing the child becomes an okay move. Same with elderly dependent relatives who sort of lost their personhood through Alzheimer's disease. You know, if you're having to care for them and they're, they're becoming a drag on your happiness, maybe it's better just to put them to sleep for good. They're no longer person, so no person is being killed. They are just, you know, a heart pumping blood through a body at that point. So uh, I'll give Singer credit for this. Singer's a remarkably consistent thinker. It's why I read him with the students at Grove in one of the courses I teach. Because, say, the great thing about Singer is he doesn't hesitate to draw 
I think you said, the rather sinister conclusions from his his presuppositions in, in a way that a lot of other thinkers on these issues, they'll, they'll be pro-abortion, but they'll pull back from the, the obvious logical conclusions of their work, I think on grounds of taste. Singer doesn't do that. Singer is, is a very consistent thinker. And if the child is going to be a drag on the happiness of the parents when, first, when he's first born, when that's clear, there is, it is not murder to have that child euthanized at that point. Well, speaking of getting from Singer to another equally controversial thinker, one figure I was surprised in your, to find in your book, considering it's, it's basically about leftist politics, really, or a lot of it, is the is Friedrich Nietzsche, who mm. is usually associated with the right. So he seems like an unlikely figure in in a book about the cultural left. And could you tell us what role Nietzsche plays in your book and in expressive individual generally? Sure, expressive well, individualism, I should say. Yes, uh, of course. The cultural left only really come in with the the sort of twentieth century when when the I'm trying to explain how the sexual revolution takes place. So my interest was not so much in, in tracing out the history of the left as it was in tracing out the history and growth uh, and implications of expressive individualism. Nietzsche is is a critical figure intellectually because he is the man who calls the bluff on the Enlightenment. Uh, in some ways, he's sort of he's a bit of a sort of McIntyre figure. In some ways, in his work, the gay science, uh, he has this scene where a madman runs into a town square and confronts the atheists who are hanging around, having polite conversations, and says, "God is dead. You've killed him." And the atheists all laugh at him and shrug their shoulders. And the madman repeats, he says, no, no, God is dead and you've killed him. And you need to realize the significance of that. Everything changes. What Nietzsche was really doing was getting at the polite Enlightenment philosophers of his day and saying, you know, you want to get rid of God, but you want to keep the moral order that was built upon belief in God. Well, if you get rid of God, actually that moral order ceases to have any authority. And that means that you must take up the challenge yourself of creating meaning. Meaning is not given to you anymore. You must create meaning. You must become a work of art, if you like. Uh, I, I, I allude in the in the book to Oscar Wilde. I think Oscar Wilde was the kind of figure that Nietzsche would have had in mind. Wilde was the... He was a rebel against the sexual mores of his day. He was a dandy. He dressed the way he wanted. His whole life was a performance. Uh, what Nietzsche does is, is he calls the bluff on the Enlightenment and says, you know, morality has no real foundation once you've got rid of God. Everything's up for grabs. That becomes very important in the 20th century. It becomes important through, even for gender theory, uh, Judith Butler, who is the, the great intellectual fountainhead of uh, gender theory, the one who really provides the, the intellectual framework for the transgender moment. Uh, Butler is very influenced by Nietzsche because what Nietzsche does is he shows that categories produced by society are really means of marginalizing categorizing, oppressing people. Uh, we can blow through those. So the category of man and woman strictly tied to biology, those are categories used to keep women in, 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 in positions of subordination. So she uses Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche is often thought of as a philosopher of the right. I think he's actually today far more useful to the left because he's the guy who smashes through all of what one might call the traditional conservative categories of culture and says, no, these have no basis. These are pure conventions created by the middle class in order to 
keep others in positions of weakness. Uh, and that insight becomes incredibly important at the level of, of intellectual theory in the latter part of the 20th century. Butler is the key figure in my narrative, but the, the, the Frenchman Michel Foucault, uh, who is also an extremely important person in the, the dismantling of uh, the notion of traditional sexual codes, he's a big disciple of Nietzsche as well. Yeah, apropos of student Judith Butler, I was at a social gathering recently, and I asked a young woman who's studying to be a social worker, what, what are some of the books she's reading? And she said, Judith Butler. And I thought, well, okay. I don't see how that's of immediate help to someone who's down and out and needs practical And it's very hard but- to read as well. Judith Butler cannot write a clear English sentence. It's very <laughs> difficult stuff. Well, apropos of clear English sentences, I, I, we were discussing Nietzsche, and I, I looked, uh, I worked my through every word of your book. It was wonderful. I even did the index, and one of the things that was amusing and, and telling was how what the entries are for God, and they include uh, as implausible, increasing irrelevance of uh, as unnecessary hypothesis. God is dead. I thought, well, that about sums up <laughs> yes. several centuries. Captures the cultural pathologies of our day quite accurately, I think. But one one thing I wanted to ask about, too, is that uh, you make the point that conservatives, you know, because you're very respectful in the book of, of the young people and you don't dismiss them as snowflakes. And you you're like, John, in fact, you're very compassionate towards them. And you're you're even more, I think, uh, a little bit more understanding of them than Jonathan Haidt, who argued really that conservatives were were were, were, or, or liberals, actually. He makes up with the liberals didn't realize that these these, these were not they shouldn't be dismissed as snowflakes are really actually much more dangerous than that mm. because he does that as they say they have carried their ideas into the workplace and 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 but i wanted to ask do you see that the the recent elections of vaunted blue wave that didn't materialize do you think some of that might have been a reaction on the part of voters to you know we're not quite on board with the democrats identity politics or do you think that was just economic or do you think there was any social social meaning of that vote because it was a, quite a surprise to the republicans themselves as well as to the democrats yes yeah there are interesting things going on in politics both here and in my homeland of course with the brexit vote i think mm. what what uh, a lot of the identity politics has done particularly as the democratic party has has picked it up and made it a mainstay of their agenda uh, it's really alienated a lot of the working class and and and, and rural people who tend to be more conservative socially, even when they might look towards more liberal economic kind of policies. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is an interesting realignment where the Democratic Party is really becoming the party of the the affluent liberal middle class. And the Republican Party is, you know, is is flipping to, to become more of a populist working class uh, party. So very interesting. I, I, but I do think uh, what you say is true. The interesting hints, not just in terms of the national picture with the when the blue wave didn't uh, materialize, but also California uh, on the election day also rejected some some interesting kind of left-wing identity politics sort of policies in California. Now, now that's surprising. You know, you'd have thought that that would have been meat and drink to certainly the California as it's portrayed in the media. So these are interesting times. I mean, I'm a historian. I, I, I find it hard to predict what's going to – I mean, I never predicted Donald Trump, for example. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. But what I would say is that, yeah, it's, it's not – 
obvious that that identity politics is going to sweep the board in the way that one might have anticipated. What that means for the United States as a unity, I don't know. I mean, it could go numerous ways, but it does seem to me that uh, what we're seeing is is a polarization on the issue of identity politics that could could put serious strain on the union, or or maybe their democratic institutions are strong enough, and our leaders become ultimately mature enough and sensible enough to be able to to handle it. I I hope that uh, what appears to be President Elect Biden's rhetoric about bringing the country back together, I hope that's more than just empty talk by a victor. I hope that does translate itself into some some attempts to to listen to to those who didn't vote for him and who have strong feelings uh, uh, and translate into some kind of attempt to find that that old middle ground way forward. Well, it's interesting. He's fighting his he's fighting the left on his own party. Yeah. So we'll see how much maneuvering room he yeah. has. I wanted to ask on, on that respect that do you think that do you think that the Antifa riots and so forth and, and will, will calm down or do you think they'll just continue? Is And are they in a weird way an expression of expressive individualism? And do you think that expressive individualism will ally with woke capitalism or will, express, will, will expressive individual ally with woke capitalism to try to squeeze out Antifa? Or will they all work together to defeat what's left of what, what used to be normal American society? Or is, or is it or Antifa fade away or... It- or there was a fascinating thing in Portland that in Portland about a month ago that the Black Lives Matter was trying was actually they had to call in the police to control unrest between Antifa and Black Lives Matter because Antifa was smashing shops and the Black Lives Matter people were saying, Well, it doesn't make us look good and that's not our agenda and it was they were turning the police to, to control it. it yeah, I mean it it is historically the case that 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 violent revolutionary movements tend to turn in on themselves. Uh Partly, I think. I mean, Nietzsche would say it's that's because violence brings a feeling of ecstasy and power. So whether they fade away, I don't know. I mean, looking at some of the faces on the rioters over the summer, you could see the joy and delight. It was fun. That's why some of those riots were taking place. People were enjoying what they were doing. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the the dynamics of the of the far left in America and how these different groups relate to each other to know if they'll fade away or not. I'm sure the violence would have been worse if President. President Trump had won. I, I don't think people, my son lives in DC. I don't think people were boarding up their shops because they were worried about Trump supporters trashing yeah. the joints. I think they were worried about Trump winning and, and those who are upset going, uh, some of them going on the rampage. So what will happen under a Biden presidency relative to the, the antics of the far left? Uh, I don't know, but clearly, uh, uh, their vision of America, uh, and what I would say is the vi- the vision of the vast majority of people, centre left and centre right, would be vastly different. Well, I wonder. I'm, I know that you're. You, I have only so much more time with you because I know you're busy. But I did want to ask if you could tell us about the Yogyakarta principles. Am I pronouncing that correct? Oh, yeah. it, y- it- Yogyakarta. Yeah, these are the principles put together by uh, a group that met. Uh, in the Indonesian city of Yogyakarta, there have been two recensions of it. These are that they have no formal status. It wasn't yeah, the United. Said that they're self-appointed non non-governmental organizations that are they're saying we are now basically a governing entity with no authority or no democratic mandate whatsoever, and yet they present these principles. 
as if they're they're written in stone and that they're somehow the voice of the people. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and 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 they have been these principles, as you say, were put together by a self-appointed group, but have been adopted by numerous countries, you know, governments around the world in in, in a more formal sense. Uh, the Yogyakarta principles essentially set forward uh, a series of. Uh, of proposals uh, concerning human rights relative to specifically uh, to the issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. So these principles have become very important as foundational document when different countries have started to formulate uh, legal uh, laws have started to, to, to formulate laws relative to LGBTQ plus kind of issues in legislation what are the the basic rights that lgbtq plus people should be granted uh, under law in different nations so that you can find them online uh, as i say that the, there was one set and then they were expanded a little bit later but they outline essentially uh, what uh, what the demands we might say the the international demands relative to human rights are of the the lgbtq plus movement well, that's very helpful just to keep an eye on that so people know that it's spelled with a Y at the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, there's so much, there's another, there's so many thinkers in your book that we didn't get to all, but one of them, I, I don't want to ignore Sigmund Freud because he's key. And I think one thing that was interesting in your book is that not only is, are his, are his, are his ideas about his obsession with sex important, but also his his anti his belief is is disdain for religion. Both of them. I mean, he's kind of a classic campus liberal in a way, even though he didn't have a uh, an academic position. Yeah, Freud's very important for my story, and I'm very in some ways, I'm very appreciative of some of Freud's insights, particularly in his sort of philosophy of culture. Uh, Freud, in his what I think is probably his greatest work, little monograph slash essay, "Civilization: Its Discontents," argues that uh, at root, hu- the, the human beings we're driven by uh, dark desires, desire to destroy, a desire for sex. Uh, but the problem is, if we if we just let rip on those things, if we just act according to our instincts, then we have total chaos. You have the war of all against all and, and you have a situation where you'll have one dominant male who will then be replaced by another dominant male, et cetera, et cetera. So Freud, Freud's idea is that, that civilization, living together in an organized community, involves a trade-off. Uh, we, we agree to discipline ourselves relative to certain behaviors, particularly sexual behaviors. Uh, and the, the the price we pay is that we we never we're never fully satisfied because what we really want is to satisfy our sexual desires, so we'll always be somewhat discontented, but we do live longer and happier lives in in general if you can put it that way, uh, and that's sort of Freud's basic theory of, of of civilization. The key thing there are a couple of key things that flow from that. One of which is Freud makes sexual desire fundamental to who we are. And, you know, expressive individualism, as I said earlier, is that, you know, the voice of nature within you, being able to act out the voice of nature, but the voice of nature within you is is who you fundamentally are. And Freud says, yeah, and that voice of nature is fundamentally sexual. And that's an incredibly important move because that means that sex is no longer something you do. It's something that defines who you are. And that's the the, the basis, one of the, the bases for 
sexual identity. When you think about it, it's it's interesting that we talk about sexual identity now. That's assuming that that sex is fundamental to our identity, and that's not always been the case. Uh, for a lot of human history, people thought sex was just behavior. People may have engaged in, preferred to engage in different kinds of it, but it was just behavior. It wasn't fundamental to who you are. So sexual identity is 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 a fruit of, of this thing you've Freud. Secondly, what Freud does there is he highlights the importance of sexual codes for the nature of culture. And when you think today about how many of the battles we're having in, in the so-called culture wars relate to matters of sexual desire and sexual expression. Freud would say kind of, that's inevitable because culture is defined by its sexual codes. But it also puts us in a rather dangerous position because if we end up allowing pretty much everything, then we stand on the verge of total chaos at that point. So Freud, I found a very interesting and helpful figure. He's central to the narrative in terms of sex becomes identity. But he's also interesting for giving uh, that lens through which we can understand sexual taboos as actually constitutive of culture and society, which means that when we start to change them or abandon them or reduce the number of them, we're changing the very nature of society itself in a very, very deep and significant way. Hmm. That's interesting, too, that his ideas are uh, something he's not a favorite of the feminist left because of the sexism and misogyny, oh, yeah. but yeah, but he. But but he's still he's still there he's still standing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the um, I know that uh, I, I just want one or two more questions. I just want to tell readers that one of the strengths of your book is that you you simply quote from many of the writings of the of the figures that you profile, and there's some absolutely chilling passages on on Herbert from by Herbert Marcuse about why he seemed quite comfortable with the idea of crushing any dissent from the leftist agenda, which is really worth reading to understand. I wonder if, is he still a figure of note? Um, by the left, or is he just another dead white male to them? I, I suspect for many he's a dead white male, if they've heard of him. I think the significance yeah. of Marcuse is that the, the, the ideas and the logic, the cultural logic that he espoused, has become a routine part of, uh, of, of new left thinking. So is Marcuse widely read today by the left? I suspect not, but one can certainly find clear parallels between the way he thinks, for example, about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is simply a way of allowing oppressors to peddle their oppression uh, and, and, and get legal protection and cover for so doing. That lies behind... Um, uh, a lot of what's going on on college campuses these days where students uh, are saying, you know, freedom of speech. No, actually, that's an evil. That just allows oppressors and racists, etc., to 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 ex to espouse their bigotry and do their psychological harm. So Marcuse himself may have passed from the scene as a living figure, but, you know, a, a, like other figures like Freud and like Marx, many of his insights have been absorbed into the common currency, the common thinking of those who may never have heard of him. But boy, they live in the world that, that he shaped and, and whose values he forged. Well, well apropos of the, 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 the world we're living in, I won't give away your proposed historical analog to what is, is a very sobering conclusion to the book. And I don't want to say it's a downer, but it's a very serious and thought-provoking reading of where where, where social conservatives of many of Christians or not are, and it has to do 
with the early church. Would you like to discuss the conclusion, or would you leave it to readers to find out? No, I'm, I'm happy to 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 mention that. I, you know, I'm a historian, so I'm always wanting to think of uh, other analogs, are there other periods in history that that give some insight into the way forward at this point? And I'm also a Christian, so although the book itself is isn't particularly Christian throughout, it's just it's historical and analytical. In the last chapter, I want to offer some thoughts as to as to how the church might approach things and. You, typically, Protestants look to the Reformation as the glory days. Uh, Catholics may look to the medieval period. I don't think either the Reformation or the medieval period really fit with the situation in which the church finds itself in today. I think it's the second century. In the second century, the church was on the margins of society. It was suspect because it was seditious. Hey, they say Jesus is Lord. How does that correlate with Caesar as Lord? Um, it was seen as uh, as immoral. Wow, that husband and wife, they call each other brother and sister. That sounds horribly incestuous. Oh, and by the way, they eat body eat bodies and drink blood when they get together to worship. So the the, the church was seen as seditious and immoral and highly distasteful. Uh, and uh, and that's pretty much where the church is today. Uh, you know, oppose gay marriage, that's an immoral stance. Um, oppose uh, uh, homosexuality, that's dis- distasteful. Uh, 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 gather together in your church and, you know, you start to look, you know, sort of seditious these days. Where where do your loyalties really lie? Is it to the common good, the common inclusive good, or is it to your religion? So I think that there's a, a reasonable analog with the second century. And what interests me is how Christians reacted to that in the second century. And Typically, it, it, you know, it wasn't culture war. They weren't trying to to seize Rome for Christ kind of thing. We have these writers, the Greek apologists, and the burden of of their writings relative to the Roman Empire was essentially, leave us alone and we'll be good citizens. We'll be the best workers. We will work for the common good. There are some things we can't do. If you demand that we sacrifice to Caesar, we can't go there because that would be a betrayal of our religious principles, a betrayal of our God. But within, you know, within those bounds, we will not fight you tooth and nail. We'll be good citizens. We'll be the best servants you have. We'll be the best grocers you have. We'll be the best friends you have. And I think the, the challenge for the church today is to resist the knee-jerk attempt to, to adopt the, the culture war idiom that's, that's deeply ingrained in a lot of the Christian right in America and to realize, no, it's time for a change of gear. It's time to reflect on what good citizenship looks like in a time when the church is marginalized and and considered somewhat suspect. And I think that probably also requires that we need to start thinking more locally than nationally. You know, I can't persuade Washington that I'm not a danger to the common good, but I can persuade my neighbor of that if I'm a good mm. member of the local community, if I help him change his tire when he's got a burst tire, if I inquire after his kids and show interest in him, if I take him food when, you know, his his uh, oven's broken down or something. So I, I think we really need, uh, in some ways, a, a, a simple, but perhaps a deceptively simple uh, response uh, at this point in time. And that's, let's think about the second century and let's think about what good citizenship means for Christians at a time when when we're marginalized or going to be marginalized and when we're under suspicion of a lot of those who hold the levers of cultural and political power. 
So you're not quite as extreme as, well, not, I wouldn't say extreme, but you don't buy into Rod Dreher, who otherwise <laughs> admires your book. And he wrote a very, very um, complimentary introduction, but you don't necessarily agree with the Benedict op- option. I, I, the Benedict option is, in some ways, uh, her, I think Rod and I are closer than some of the people who've interpreted Rod would think a lot of people you know the title benedict option was a brilliant selling point it's a very catchy title it carries with it strong monastic connotations that i actually don't think rod is always pushing for in the book and the book goes a little bit of in different directions at points but but i think rod would would actually say yeah this this being a good member of your local community being a worshiping community within the local community is is consistent with with the Benedict option. So uh, I've, I've I've spoken to Rod about this a couple of times, and I don't think there's a huge distance between us actually on this one. Well, I was just thinking when you were speaking about the idea that some ideas are strike Christian Christian practices and beliefs strike other people as odd. I was just thinking of again Amy Comey, Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings. I think it was Ben Sass of Nebraska who was saying, "Well, you know what? Some some ideas of Christianity." do seem weird to other people, but you know what? They're held by millions of people around the world. I yeah, that was a, yeah. Yeah. a bit of public education on his part. Well, Carl, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually working on an abbreviation of this book, would you believe? Uh, the first week of sales was so successful that my uh, publisher dropped me a note and said, we want to offer you a contract for a 150-page book that people will That's actually funny. read. I mean, this is 400 pages. It's a lot to get through. But they want a book that ordinary people will have time to read, that staffers in D.C. can be given and expected to read, that pastors can be expected to read. So my next project is to to try to boil this down to a, a manageable footnoteless form that will give the gist of the argument to, uh, to people who don't, simply don't have time to read a 400-page book. Well, I, I think that's a brilliant idea, and I kudos to your marketing people at Crossway because that's a good idea to have it just as a manageable, easy-digestible, easy, easy stocking-stuffer kind of form. And I, I also wanted to, to just say to, to listeners that there are quite a number of lectures or lectures that you gave recently on a whole series of, of for growth. City College, your institute. Could you tell me the name of your institution? Yeah, Grove City College. If you go to gcc.edu and look up the great lectures from the Grove series, you'll find not just me. I think there are other faculty have done that as well. But I did eight lectures that that they're not they don't track exactly with the book uh, in terms of order, but basically give the the central argument of the book um, in in a uh, an easily manageable lecture form. Well, I'm looking forward to those. I I put put them off because I was finishing your book, so I was having me- media overload. <laughs> <laughs> I have only two eyes, and so. Yeah. But I wanted to say with that, I will just thank. Oh, also, I want to say that there are lect- lectures, uh, interviews with you in podcast form on other podcasts about the book. So I urge people to just um, Google your name and and the name of the book, which is. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individual, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Expressive Individualism and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And with that, I would just thank the scholar we've been talking to, Carl Truman, author of that book. And thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.